For millennia, people from different countries, cultures, and backgrounds have found direction and encouragement in the inspired pages of the Bible. In his day, Jesus directed listeners to search the prophecies of Scripture to find Him the only way of salvation. 2,000 years later, as we stand on the brink of eternity, we no less need the purpose and hope God's Word provides. Sacramento Central Church brings you Receiving the Word, timely Bible messages presented by Pastors Chris Buttery and Mike Thompson. Amazing revelations await you in God's Holy Word, the Bible. The title of my message this morning as we enter into a brand new year is 2015, the end of the world and you. Someone quipped that they had hoped that the end of the world will come in 2015, that way they would not be held accountable for their New Year's resolutions. <laughs> but uh, you know as well as I do, you can have a new start in Jesus anytime. You don't have to wait for a new year to come along. It was during the early morning of April 15 of the previous year, 2014, the first of four lunar eclipses of the moon occurred and they were visible in the Americas. Astronomers call this a lunar tetrad and define it as four successive total lunar eclipses with no partial lunar eclipses in between, each of which is separated from the other by six lunar months or six full months. When the earth falls directly between the sun and the moon, the light from the sun passes through the earth's atmosphere and it creates a coppery red hue on the, sun, on the moon. What has interested some prophecy teachers about this astronomical phenomena is not just the number of the lunar eclipses, but the timing of them. In 2014, a full lunar eclipse occurred on the day of Passover and the first day of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's supposed to happen again this year in April and in September. In addition to the, in addition to the, the two lunar eclipses of 2015, two solar eclipses are supposed to take place as well. Similar to the lunar eclipse back in the back-to-back uh, -back years have happened seven times since the time of Jesus. And some of those have occurred in years that are significant to Jewish history, uh, such as 1948 when Israel granted statehood, and then in 1967 when the Six-Day War was fought. Now, because the Bible refers to the moon turning to the color of blood in several places, one in the book of Joel, another in Revelation chapter 6, and these are referenced with the, uh, mentioned in reference to the second coming of Jesus, and because that these uh, things occur or fall at the time of certain Jewish feasts, the lunar tetrad of 2014 and 15 has high significance among some Bible teachers. For one popular Christian writer, it was so significant that he declared in 2008 that Jesus was going to come in the fall of 2015. The end of the world would come. When certain things he predicted leading up to the, the end of the world didn't happen, happen as he had predicted, uh, he pulled the statement from his website. But he and another prominent minister still teach that the four 
blood moons have significant implications for our world, and we should see uh, some, expect to see some earth-shaking events that take place over in the land of Israel. Now, think just recently about some failed predictions that gained nearly universal attention. May 21, 2011, according to the president of Family Radio, Judgment Day and the Rapture was supposed to take place then. December 2012 was, according to the Mayan calendar, supposed to be the end of the world. Setting a date for the return of Jesus Christ has never gotten anyone anywhere. But we are still interested in knowing what the future holds. As a matter of fact, in the Scriptures, the disciples of Jesus were also interested in knowing what the future held. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, and you'll notice a question that they asked the Lord. Matthew 24... And we'll read verse 3. The disciples were interested in knowing how the end was going to come about, and they were also interested in knowing when it was going to happen. Matthew chapter 24, and we'll read verse 3. They came to him. Now, as they sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him, that is Jesus, privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. They were interested in knowing when the end of all things would be. How soon, Lord, until the end of the world? And what will be the signs of your coming in the end of the world? And what did the Lord of creation, the one who knows the end from the beginning, tell them? What did he say? First of all, in verse 4, he warned them, do not be what? Deceived. Don't be deceived. In other words, deception is going to be rampant in the last days. The enemy of souls isn't going to walk around and hand out his business card telling you he's a master deceiver. No Christian will be deceived by an open opposer, so he comes secretly and quietly and stealthily. Specifically, though, Christ warned about being deceived in four areas pertaining to his return. His, the second coming. Those areas are the manner of His coming, number one. Number two, the timing of His coming. Number three, the Christian's attitude toward His coming. And then number four, the Christian's responsibility while waiting for His coming. With respect to the manner of His coming, Jesus plainly tells, told His disciples, and He tells you and I, that when He appears, He's going to appear personally, He's going to appear visibly, He's going to appear audibly, He's going to appear powerfully, not secretly as the promoters of the blood-red moon theory purport. Not going to happen. With regard to the timing, the promoters of the blood-red moon theory suggest that there will be a seven-year tribulation. Jesus will come secretly to rapture out His people ahead of time, and in the middle of those seven years, the Antichrist is going to appear, or something like that. And then all of these things written in Matthew chapter 24 and Revelation chapter 4 and onward will take place during the tribulation. That's what's taught. But talking about the signs of Jesus' return, notice what Jesus said in verse 32 and 33. He says something very important for us to understand. Jesus said, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is where? near. Verse 33, so you also know when you shall see all these things, what things? 
all these things he mentioned before, the ever-increasing earthquakes and, and natural disasters and uh, the love of many waxing cold and iniquity abounding. When you see all of these things take place, know that it is what? Near. Not that it is here, but that it is near. Promoters of the seven-year tribulation theory suggest that Jesus has already come and then all of these things mentioned in Matthew 24 will take place. But Jesus said, no, 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 know that they are not here, but that they are, that it, not that I am here, but that it is near. My coming is near, you see, even at the doors. As for 2015, we don't know whether this will be the last year. For in verse 36, Jesus said, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, with regard to attitude, with regard to attitude, many times the end of the world is viewed with dread and horror, something to be completely avoided. You look at most of the Christian world today, there is, a, as I mentioned, there's a secret rapture before the tribulation. Christians want to get out of here as well. They don't want to be around for what's, what's coming. Uh, Jesus, however, directly countered uh, this thinking when he said in verse 13, notice, he said, but he who what? Endures to the end shall be what? Save, you're not going to be raptured out of here, but if you endure till the end, if you trust in my grace, if you know that my angels are there to protect you and guide you and lead you, and I'll be right by your side, you can be saved. If you endure till the end, you can be saved. Look at verse 22. He said, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Jesus has promised that he will shorten those days. Now, not that we should be looking forward to what's coming with uh, a kind of bring it on kind of attitude either. For the lost, yes, it will be a day of horror for sure. But the end of the world, Christ's coming provides incredible hope for humanity. Look at verse 30. Look at what Jesus said. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, those that are lost. And they, they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power, and great glory. And notice verse 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will do what? Gather together his elect, the saved from the four winds, the four corners, from all over the world, from one end of heaven to the other. For the Christian, the coming of Jesus is not a, a, a doom and gloom message. It is a hopeful message. Jesus is coming back. Why? He's coming back in power and great glory. He's bringing all his angels with him. Why? To gather the saved, to gather the elect. This is a time of rejoicing, happiness, and joy and hope for God's people. The saved will be rescued when Jesus comes. And in Luke's rendition, in Luke chapter 21, verse 27 and 28, Jesus said, then they will see the Son of Man coming in cloud, in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, Look up, lift up your heads, not hang your face down. Don't let your chin drag on the ground, but lift up your heads. Why? Because your redemption draws nigh. Jesus is coming to rescue and redeem his people. That's good news for God's people, amen? Sure, wonderful news that Jesus is coming back. We're not to be biting our nails, panicking, hopelessly fearful during these last days, but hopeful because if we have made Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior, not just 20 years ago, not just 10 years ago, not just five years ago, but if you've made him Lord and Savior today, then you can and you must 
Have hope because he will save you when he comes back. Wonderful news, wonderful news. So with regard to, uh, Jesus says, don't be deceived with regard to the manner in which I'm coming. The timing in which I come. Your attitude with regard to my coming. But don't be deceived either with regard to your responsibility, your duty with regard to my coming. And to illustrate that, Jesus told four stories that express the attitude and activity of the saints just prior to the return of Jesus. Now, among the identifying characteristics of those that are looking for the appearing of Jesus, and we'll put that up on the screen, Jesus mentions those who will do what? Number one, endure until the end. Uh, they'll be witnesses, number two, of his, the power of the gospel in their lives. And they'll also be faithful and wise, knowing how to give bread in due season. I want you to take a look at verse 45. Let's read that together. You're still in Matthew 24 and verse 45. It says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? So these particular stories, this, these identifying characteristics of God's people in the last day, illustrated, they're illustrated in four stories. The parable of the wise and faithful servant in Matthew 24. They're illustrated in the ten bridesmaids of Matthew 25. The business, businessman distributing his responsibilities to his employees. And the parable of the sheep and the goats. And the common thread in all of these parables answer the one question in Matthew chapter 24, verse 45. Who is a faithful and wise servant who is ready to distribute bread, food in due season? And it teaches us that readiness for Jesus' coming is not a matter of a last-minute preparation, like we've been warned an earthquake is coming or a tornado is about to hit, or it's not about seriously cramming like a, you are for a final exam. No, while urgency is certainly a part of the committed Christian's life, readiness for Jesus' coming is more a matter of steadily growing in the grace of our Lord Jesus and being ready for His appearing every day. That's what these stories teach us. When you look at the wise and the, and the faithful bridesmaids in Matthew 25, they're the ones who are allowing the truths of God's Word to change them, to make them recipients of God's grace that shows in good works, that shines like the noonday sun. They have a personal, joyful, trusting, obedient relationship with Jesus. And they stand in stark contrast to the deceived, the deceived who think that a mere knowledge of the truths of God's Word, faithful church attendance, impeccable tithe paying, name on the church books, countless missionary activities, all, by the way, of which are good and necessary, but without the Spirit of God will entitle them to heaven. That's what they think. Somewhere, the, the deceived are still saying no to God, somewhere in their hearts and in their lives. When we look at the story of the wise and the faithful employees, entrusted with their employer's goods, they're the ones who have learned that the law of self-development is their first duty to God and to man. And in that book that I quoted from a couple of weeks ago, God at Risk, they realize their daily call to serve others is the test of their fitness to live forever. In other words, they truly love. And these faithful, wise employees stand in stark contrast to the deceived who think that self-preservation is the law of life. They're holding back from God and humanity their abilities that He's given them, making them 
the center of their own universe and refusing to take any advantage of the many opportunities to grow in usefulness and in Christ-likeness. What about the wise and the faithful, the sheep? Basically, they're genuine Christians, genuinely Christian. They realize that Christianity is primarily in the world of being, far more than just knowing or even doing good works, but being a Christian. They know that righteousness is not granted as a diploma after years of hard study or after, a per, after you've baptized a number of individuals into the, into the church uh, as necessary, maybe, and, and yes, and commendable as these things are. These individuals stand in stark contrast to the deceived who believe that the entrance into the kingdom of heaven is for those who've kept the rules only, maintained the standards and answered all theological questions correctly. Just that's it. But they don't realize that the wide and glorious welcome will be extended to those that have loved others freely. Well, what about the wise and faithful of Matthew 24, the story in Matthew 24? They're the they're ones, the wise and faithful of those who are living like Jesus will come anytime. They're winning the favorable attention of those who maybe are thirsting for peace of mind during the turbulence of these end times. Their words are compelling because their lifestyle is compelling. They stand in stark contrast to the deceived who are comforting themselves with the false notion that Jesus is delaying His coming and not realizing that that very attitude is contributing to the delay. And because the faithful know in whom they believe, they work for the uplifting of humanity, the restoration of their neighbor's physical, mental, social, and spiritual needs, not pushing themselves on others, but tactfully, lovingly, perseveringly preparing people to stand in the great day when Jesus comes back again. They know, as Jesus said, that the night is coming when no man can work. They realize that the last day remnant, last day prophet to the remnant has warned in the fifth volume of the testimonies, page 463, that the work which the church has failed to do in a time of peace and prosperity, she will have to do in a terrible crisis under the most discouraging, forbidding circumstances. God's last day people the wise and the faithful are workers for the master. They're not motivated by fear. Oh, no, no, no. They're motivated by love, love for Christ and love for others. And they're also motivated by, from knowing the times in which they live. They realize there's not a lot of time left. They realize there's not going to be a more favorable time like the present to win people to Jesus Christ, to Jesus' side. These are the individuals in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 45, where it says, who, who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Is it time to give the food of the gospel, the word of God to those that are hungry, to those that need to know the truth for the last day so they too can be ready for the return of Christ? Are we the wise and faithful who know that it is time and high time to share the love of Christ with others because Jesus is coming back soon and we want to see them, family, friends, neighbors saved in God's kingdom at last? Are we the wise and the faithful, giving bread in due season? You see, God's people sympathize with Jesus. When he told his disciples in John 4, 35, and you know the story pretty well. The story was when the woman had come to that well and, uh, and Jesus had met her there and told her, 
bring me up some water. She was curious about a Jewish man talking to her, a Samaritan, bringing up water. And so she started in on a conversation with Jesus and then she got a little distracted and sidetracked and wanted to deviate from what, where Jesus was going. And finally it dawned on her that the man that she was talking to was none other than the awaited, long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. And you remember what she did? You know what she did? She went back to her village there, went back to her village in Sychar and they, they responded. And she told them, come see a man that's told me everything that I've ever done. <laughs> Come see a man who's, ever, who's, tell, who's, who's told me everything I've ever done. And what did Jesus say when she was gone? She, he told his disciples in John 4 verse 35. He said that the, the fields are already white for harvest. The harvest is ripe. People are ready to be gathered in. As a matter of fact, in one place he said the harvest is great. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 and verse 2. Luke chapter 10 and verse 2. God's people sympathize with Jesus when he told his disciples that the fields are white already for harvest and also that the harvest is great. Look at Luke chapter 10 and verse 2. Jesus is about to send out the 70, 70 of his disciples, his followers, and he's about to send them on missionary endeavors. And notice verse 2, he said to them, the harvest truly is what, friends? Great. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. God's last day people get it. They understand with Jesus that the harvest, the fields are already white for harvest. The harvest is great, you see. What did Jesus mean when he said the harvest is truly great? What did Jesus mean? And what Jesus was saying to his disciples and that God's last day people will sympathize with is that we need a new perspective on the way we see our world. That's what Jesus was saying in Luke 10 verse 2. Jesus wants for us to have a new perspective on the way we see things around us. What did Jesus mean when he said the harvest? The harvest is great. Now, he's not referring, of course, to the harvest at the end of the world when the saints will be gathered and the wicked judged. Oh, no, no, no. He's using simply a metaphor of a harvest to refer to the missionary endeavors, that is, uh, missionary endeavors, leading men and women, leading men and women, boys and girls, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, Christ and gathering them into his kingdom. That's what he's referring to. The harvest is great. The harvest of missionary, the missionary endeavors, people running to and fro, sharing the gospel message with others, gathering people into his kingdom. You see, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is not sending his angels out to gather the harvest. In Luke chapter 10, he's sending out his, the 70. You can read that in verse 1. And these things the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city going where he himself was about to go. Jesus wasn't sending out his angels to gather them for the great and final harvest when he comes back. No, he was sending out his disciples, his followers to the harvest, sending them out two by two. And did you notice that the harvest is not just a regular harvest, but what type of harvest is it? Now, if you're a, if you're a farmer, I mean, if you've planted even just some vegetables in your backyard, I mean, and, you, and you've got those big juicy tomatoes hanging from your tomato vine or, or bananas from your banana palm or, 
whatever it is you've got growing in your backyard, peaches from a peach tree, whatever it is. It's an exciting day when you go out there and, and you realize that very, very soon you're going to have all those green fruits and vegetables that are going to be ripe. It's an exciting day when you go out there and they are ripe. You can imagine how God feels as he's looking at the earth and he's saying, man, the harvest is great. The fields are already white for harvest, ready, ready to be gathered in. This is an exciting time, a great and exciting time to be alive. You can imagine how the great harvester, God himself, looks at planet earth with excitement and with anticipation. The harvest is great. And what did he mean? Simply this, that men and women, many men and women, many boys and girls are ready and waiting to be gathered into Christ's kingdom. That's what Jesus was saying. Many, many are waiting to be gathered in. They only need to hear the good news and receive the invitation. And we can work with that in mind, with anticipation, with joy, with hopefulness, with expectancy, because the Holy Spirit is working in powerful ways in people's lives, because God's end-time people have a perspective on the world uh, they will not only proclaim the gospel, not only will we, will we, because we have this perspective about the harvest being great, not only will we proclaim the gospel, but by God's grace, we'll be living the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end will come. That means you and I will be following Paul's advice that was read during our scripture reading. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. Philippians chapter 1 Verses 9 and 10, abounding in what? Love. God's people in the last days are going to be abounding in love, not growing cold and stale, but abounding in love. Not a pseudo love that's wrapped up with pure, simple, pure emotion, but a love that is sacrificing, a love that puts a person out. Uh, you, you, put, you, you go out of your way to, to do something for somebody else's salvation. It also means that we'll be proving those things. Do you see that there? And more in knowledge and all what, friends? discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent. God's people will be uh, approving things, proving those things that are excellent, sifting through in these last days the myriad of stuff that, that seeks to consume our time, our talents, and our treasures from investing them in building up the kingdom of heaven. All of this, friends, because we see the world through new eyes. We see the world through a new perspective. We see that the harvest is truly great, we see through the eyes of Jesus. What is Jesus really saying as I close? What is he saying? Be aware of the times in which we live. Yes, live as if you know what hour it truly is. Gain his perspective on things, that the harvest is truly ripe, truly ripe. That means we'll be a little more kinder, amen? Means that we'll be a little more patient, amen? means that we'll be more determined to be honest and true in our walk with God. That might mean that you, you need to become a little more faithful in your tithe paying. may mean that you need to, need, to, need to up it a little bit with regard to Sabbath observance. Maybe it has to do with church ministry and getting involved to build up the work of God so that your witness won't be undermined. It'll mean all of these things. If we gain Jesus' perspective, our life will have congruency. And what a witness our life will be. In closing, I want to just put up a little saying on the screen. I shared this with you a few weeks back, and I'm going to share it with you the next few weeks. This is a series we're going to be sharing together on Luke chapter 10. The harvest truly is great, 
But I want us to keep this in mind as we talk about serving the Lord and working for Him, putting the, truly the, the horse before the cart. It says, I cannot work my soul to save, for that the Lord has done. But I will work like any slave for the love of God's dear Son. We're so glad you decided to tune in to today's Receiving the Word program. To discover more about the Bible, we'd like to invite you to enroll in our free online Bible studies by visiting saccentral.org and click on the Media Resources tab. To listen to other life-changing Bible messages from Sacramento Central Church, go to youtube.com forward slash The Central Connection or visit us Saturday mornings at 1050 a.m. for a live worship experience at 6045 Camellia Avenue across the street from Sacramento State University. We look forward to seeing you there.